please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 11. You know, something that has stood out to me as we've been going through our study in the book of Revelation is not only the judgment of God and His holiness in executing that judgment, but also the grace of God. You see, in the book of Revelation, interspersed through these passages that speak of the terrible judgment that God is going to visit on this earth, are passages that speak of how God is reaching out to those who do not know Him with a message of truth. Now, we've already seen where He's going to speak through 144,000 witnesses that He is going to protect and seal so that they can share the gospel. We've seen it through those who find the gospel and trust Christ throughout the tribulation period, a period where God's judgment will be visited on the earth. There are people who respond and find faith and die martyrs' deaths because of that faith. Their witness is also going out. And now as we come to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see two witnesses that will have a prominent role during the seven years of tribulation, or at least three and a half of those years, and they're going to share the gospel as well. The purpose of God is to bring people to saving relationship with Him. And He shares that in multiple ways, even in the midst of a time period where God is judging man for his sin. And you know, as I think about all of these opportunities that people have to believe, all of these chances that they have to respond to the grace of God, what's amazing to me is peppered throughout those opportunities where people have to respond to the gospel and to come into that right relationship with God is their refusal to do so. People, by and large, the vast majority of people during the tribulation will reject the message. Rather than responding to the warning of the prophecy that we have right before us in the book of Revelation or the testimony of the witnesses who will share, they spurn it. And as I think about that, I'm reminded of Harry Truman. Now, it's not the president, Harry Truman, that I'm speaking of. But in the early 80s, Mount St. Helens erupted. Prior to the eruption of this volcano, which was devastating, I mean, it was amazingly devastating. There was warning given to an old man named Harry Truman. Officials had mandatory evacuation, and he refused to respond to the warning. He dug in his heels and stayed right at the base of Spirit Lake in the Mount St. Helens Lodge and refused to leave. Warning after warning given, He ignored it. He was dead set, and I use that term dead set intentionally on staying the course and not responding to the warnings. Mount St. Helens erupted, and the lodge was buried under 150 feet of debris. Why didn't he respond? Stubbornness? 
willfulness. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And listen, there are people who function in that way daily. They will not respond to the Word of God, the truth of God. They're dead set on going their own course. And really, that's what we see as the story of the book of Revelation unfolds. What happens to people who refuse to listen, who refuse to respond to the warnings that God gives, the grace that God extends? We're going to see that in part as we look at the text we'll be looking into this morning. That brings us to the title of this section that I've given it, Woe to Those Who Will Not Believe. There are consequences for disbelief. When we refuse to believe the truth that God has given us, we spurn it and we insist on going our own independent way. We're allowed to do so. But in allowing us to do so, it also means that we experience the consequences of that decision. And certainly that's brought out clearly as we look here in the book of Revelation. Now this morning, we're going to start with a part of the passage that discusses two witnesses who will testify about God during the tribulation period. But just before these witnesses are introduced to us, we find in the first two verses of the book of Revelation, chapter 11, a statement about the temple in Jerusalem. And what it says is this. John is speaking, and he says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. Now, think in terms of a yardstick, right? So he was given this measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So this is his task. Now, we've seen John do some unusual things. Just prior to this, in chapter 10, John was told to eat a scroll. Now, we know that this was a figurative way of referring to John taking the Word of God and making it a part of who he is, but then also he was given the task of once eating the scroll to prophesy, to share what God has said to the people. Now, as we come to the 11th chapter, and he's told to take this staff, this yardstick, if you will, and measure the temple grounds, we have to ask, first of all, what temple is he referring to? There isn't a temple in Jerusalem at this time, right? There's a lot of controversy in Jerusalem about whether or not to build the temple, but there's a major obstacle in the way of where the temple will be built and why it can't be built today, and that's a Muslim mosque. They can't tear that down to replace it with the temple. But at some point during the tribulation, what the Word of God reveals to us is there will be a temple that will be built in Jerusalem. It's going to take place. We don't know how it takes place. We don't know the circumstances. Perhaps one of the earthquakes levels the Muslim mosque. We don't know. But what we do know is that this temple will be built and it will be a part of the landscape of Jerusalem. And when it's built in this vision that God gives John concerning this upcoming temple, John is told to measure the temple. Now, why? Is God interested in the architecture of the temple? I don't think so. 
When we look in Scripture, there are several instances where prophets were told to go and measure something. In the Old Testament, we can see Isaiah being told to go and measure something. We can see Ezekiel being told to go and measure something. And Zechariah was told to go and measure something. There's a prophetic significance to this idea of measuring something. And what that pictures for us is ownership. The fact that God owns these things that each one of these prophets, including John, was told to go and measure. Now, why would that indicate ownership? Suppose you come home and there's someone in your living room and they're measuring your living room. You don't know them. You've never entered into a conversation or even seen them before, but here's this person in your living room measuring your living room. What would you say to that person? Get out. This isn't yours. This doesn't belong to you right? We measure those things that we own. That's the picture of what's being shared here in the book of Revelation as John is measuring the temple of God. He is measuring something that belongs to God, that is pointed toward God, and so that's why he's told to do this. But something very interesting in his directions as far as measuring the temple. It goes on in the second verse to forbid him, to preclude him from measuring part of the temple grounds. It says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. Now, we're going to pause there for a moment, and we're going to try to understand exactly what's being communicated by this. With the temple, there was an inner court where the children of Israel the descendants of Abraham, would come and worship. But on the temple grounds, there was an outer court, and that was the place where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, would come. And maybe these were God-fearing Gentiles, and uh, maybe these were people who were just interested in what's going on on the temple grounds. Many different reasons for them coming to that outer court. But they weren't allowed into the inner court where just the people of God and the sacrificial system and all of the things that we would associate with the temple were going on. So what God is telling John in this text is, I want you to measure the inner part, the part with the people of God, but don't bother measuring the outer court because that is handed over. Now the ESV translates this, nations. But many of our other translations would say Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And then this explanation is given further as we look at the second verse. It is given over to the nations, and look at this, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this trampling of the holy city. The holy city obviously is Jerusalem. That's where the temple will be. And... This trampling, it doesn't communicate people who are there for the good of Jerusalem. This is communicating people who are there to trample, to crush underfoot, to destroy Jerusalem. Now, when we look at our current culture, it's not hard for us to imagine that. Throughout the history of Jerusalem... There have been people committed to the destruction of Jerusalem, and it will be no different during the tribulation. For 42 months, 42 and a half months, this will be 
trampled, it says. 42 months of trampling. Half of the tribulation period. Now, you might say, now wait a minute, pastor, 365 days a year, 42 months. That doesn't quite figure, especially when he goes on to say 1,260 days a little bit later in the text. What's going on? Bear this in mind. By Jewish reckoning, there were 360 days in the calendar year. So this 42 months or 1,260 days is by the Jewish calendar's reckoning. And so what it's telling us is that for half of the tribulation period, this is what will be going on, this trampling of Jerusalem, this part of the temple belonging to the people of God, and part of the temple belonging to the world at large. And what we're going to see a little bit later is the temple is actually going to go into the hands of one who stands against God, the Antichrist, and he's going to do terrible things with this temple that John is measuring. So, when we begin this text, we're seeing this setup for something that's going to come much later in the book of Revelation, but it needs to be there as the groundwork. The prophet Daniel said this about the temple and about the people of Israel and about this figure that we're going to see developed more in the book of Revelation, and he is called the Antichrist, the beast. He is going to stand against the people of God. But this is what Daniel warns us about in his book, and he says this. He, and this is referring, by the way, to this Antichrist, to the beast, he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, in the book of Daniel, a week does not refer to seven days, but it refers to seven years. And then it goes on to say this, and for half of the week, three and a half years, He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, what this is saying is there is a temple that will be in Jerusalem, and initially the temple will be open for business. But in the midst of the tribulation, the temple will be shut down. It will no longer be allowed to serve the purpose of sacrifice and offering. And then it says this, And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, what this is saying in very prophetic language is the beast, the Antichrist, is going to have his way, and he's going to have an abomination that will be set up in the temple of God. What we'll see as we go on, and I don't mean to give you a spoiler in this, but what we will see as we go on is the Antichrist, the beast, will usurp the temple of God for his purposes. And he will stand in the place of God and make himself out to be God, and the whole world will worship him. So this is the beginning of this setup for this discussion about the Antichrist. And it's a warning to the people, a warning that there will be those who will come in and appear to be wonderful and great and good for humanity. And even the Jewish people will think that they're wonderful, but they will turn on them and do terrible things. And this is a warning to the people. But then, right on the heels of this warning, we come to the next part of this 11th chapter. And what we find is discussion about two witnesses 
who will prophesy for three and a half years. Now, let me begin, before we look into this discussion about these two witnesses, by giving you some disclaimers. Number one, we don't know who these two witnesses are. You read commentaries on the book of Revelation, and they can be very creative in their identification. It's speculation, because the Word of God does not tell us who these two witnesses are. We can take human reasoning, and we can make good guesses, but that's all they are, is guesses. So I'm not going to take the time to identify those that the Bible does not directly identify for us. We're just not going to go there. Number two, there's a lot of discussion as to when the two witnesses do their thing and share the truth of God. Some people say it's the first half of uh, the tribulation. Some people say it's kind of sandwiched in the middle, right between uh, the, the first part and the last part, and three and a half years that, that this takes place. Or some people say that it's right at the tail end of the revelation. We don't know. We don't know exactly when these witnesses will do their ministry. There are compelling arguments for each one of those views. So, what am I saying? What I'm saying is, who they are isn't that important, or God would have told us. When they do what they do isn't that important, because God would have made it much clearer. So, what is important is what they will do. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning as we look at this text. What are these two witnesses going to do? So look at what the Scripture says, starting at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now, these are two witnesses that God is going to identify and give His authority to do what He calls them to do. The full authority of God is behind these two witnesses. And look at what it goes on to say in that third verse. And they will prophesy for 120 days clothed in sackcloth. So they will have a three and a half year ministry, 42 month ministry. And what they're going to do during this ministry is they're going to share God's truth. In sharing God's truth, it says they will be clothed in sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth? What is the purpose of sackcloth? Let's talk about that for a moment. When we look in the Old Testament, sackcloth was the garment that people who were grieving would wear. When they put on sackcloth, it was a statement to everyone around them that I am in a period of grief. I am in a period of sorrow. So what God is saying in this text very clearly is this. These witnesses have a message that will be good and bad, and they grieve as they share it. They are delighted to do the work of God, but the message of the terrible things that are going to take place also bring grief to them. And we find this throughout the Old Testament with various prophets. Some of us view prophets as people who get to share bad news, and they're in the background going, yes, this is great. Sometimes even as Christians, when we share the gospel and we talk about the consequences of sin, we can come across as people who enjoy the idea of terrible consequences. That's not what prophets did, and that's not what we should do. 
The terrible consequences of sin should bring grief. You know, something TJ said last week during communion that I really appreciated was this reminder that we deserve all of these things, but for the grace of God and the provision of Jesus Christ, we would be recipients of these things. So here are these two prophets. They're going out, they're sharing the message of God, and they have on this sackcloth. And then it goes on in the next part of this passage, verse 4, to say this, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, Again, the poetic language in the book of Revelation, if we don't have the context for it biblically, we look at it and we say, what is he talking about? And what John is talking about is this. When we go back into the Old Testament, there is a passage that talks about olive trees and lampstands. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet talks about two figures, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were main figures in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, Joshua was the high priest, and so he would have the opportunity to serve as high priest in the newly built temple. But then we also had Zerubbabel, who was a governor, and he had the responsibility of leading the people of God. And when we look in the book of Zechariah, these are the people that he refers to when he says the following. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of the tree. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Now here's the idea. In lampstands and bowls in the ancient Near East, olive oil was used to keep the lampstand going. The idea that these have a direct root from an olive tree talks about an endless supply for these leaders of Israel, Joshua and Zerubbabel. By the way, just a sidelight, love the name Zerubbabel. Tried to get some of my daughter-in-laws to name our kids Zerubbabel, but they just wouldn't do it. At any rate... What we find in this text is this. These two witnesses, like Joshua and Zerubbabel, will have an endless supply to carry out the work of God. And in this case, in Zechariah, and in this case, in the book of Revelation with these two witnesses, we believe this endless supply is the Holy Spirit of God. They will be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to carry out their work. And that's what this imagery is picturing for us here in this fourth verse. But then we come to the fifth verse. And these two witnesses are going to be very unique. When we look at the prophets of the Old Testament, when we look at the apostles of the New Testament, when we look at John and and so many, people were able to stop their ministry by incarcerating them or killing them. What verse 5 shares with us is these two witnesses for three and a half years will not have to worry about that because they are protected by God. Look at verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, this is extreme, isn't it? We, we, We don't know whether... 
there's fire pouring out of their mouths literally, or whether they just speak something and judgment is immediately brought to bear because of what they say. But here's what we do understand. They will be protected by God, and rather than being consumed by their enemies, they will have the authority of God to stop their enemies. That's what's being communicated by this. It goes on to say that in verse 6, they will have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So, a lot of authority given to these two witnesses. These two witnesses, whoever they are, are going to be people who can stop the rain. They are going to be people who have the miraculous ability to turn water into blood. They are the people who will be able to withstand anything that man brings against them because of the authority that God has given them. Now, it says three and a half years. What happens at the conclusion of three and a half years, this 1260 days? Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer and kill them. Now, this is the first of 36 references to the beast or to the Antichrist, a central figure that we'll see in the closing chapters of this section chapters 3, or excuse me, 4, 6, I'll get this straight, 6 through 19. So what this is, is uh, an, an introduction to this figure, and what we see is, in God's purpose, God will remove the protection from these two witnesses, and the Antichrist, this puppet of Satan, this leader who is inspired by demonic activity, he will conquer them and kill them. And then look at how the world responds, verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, what is this talking about? Here's the picture. Satan arises, kills the two witnesses, and rather than burying them or getting rid of them some way, what do they do? They put them on public display. These are these people who have been causing trouble, and the Antichrist has crushed them, and let's party, because we're done with these terrible witnesses. The place that they will be displayed is described for us as the symbolic Sodom and Egypt. Where is that? Well, once again, this is Jerusalem. The spiritual climate of Jerusalem will descend to the place that they are like Sodom, which is a city in the Old Testament that was the quintessential sin city, and Egypt, the place of idolatry, the place of oppression. So this is the picture that we're given of what will take place with these two witnesses. They will be killed, and notice the eighth verse, after it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom and Egypt, um, we know that it's Egypt because, or Jerusalem because of what is said, um, where their Lord was crucified. 
That, that identifies it for us crystal clear, doesn't it? But then look at verse 9, and this is amazing as the story unfolds. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. So this is an event, a world event. They're now coming to look at these two witnesses that have been vanquished by the beast, and they're there to celebrate, and they're there to say, this is a good thing, this is a wonderful thing. Look at what has taken place. Don't bury them. Let's gloat over their demise. But something amazing happens. Verse 10. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. So Christmas comes early. We're giving presents in celebration of their demise because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But, verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. And one of those understatements that we find so often in Scripture, great fear fell on those who saw them. So I want you to picture this. They're giving presents. They're celebrating. Yay for us. Yay for our side. Yay for our team. And in the midst of celebration, the two witnesses lying dead arise, resurrected by God. That's why I say that statement, great fear fell on them, is probably an understatement. I mean, can you put yourself in this place to where you're looking, you're thinking, my enemy has been vanquished, and then like one of the soap operas that we see on TV where the bad guy always comes back, this is reality. You know, this is the real deal. This is, by the world's estimation, the bad guy's coming back, but it's not by the power of Satan, it's by the power of God, and that shows us something very important. Satan can do some terrible things. The power of Satan can do things that make us hurt and sorrow. But God is greater than Satan. See, God raises these two witnesses. And it's a demonstration that these are mine. These are my people. And they cannot be defeated by evil. For I am God. Verse 12 goes on to say, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So not only do they arise, but a voice from heaven says, Come up. And they go up to God in a cloud. The enemies will have no explanation for that. All they can do is stand and watch. And then look at the 13th verse. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city falls. So what, what we're seeing, by the way, this is written in past tense because that's a way that prophecy is often written. It's as sure as it has happened is the idea. But what is being said here is very clear. The Jerusalem that has been trampled by Gentiles, the Jerusalem where the beast 
is setting up his kingdom will be leveled one-tenth of the city because of the earthquakes that will come will be leveled and 7,000 people are going to be killed in the earthquake. So that's a message to these people who have rejected the message of these two witnesses that God is still on the throne. And they need to listen. Now, look at what it goes on to say. There are survivors of these earthquakes. There are others in Jerusalem who do not fall. And in the latter part of the 13th verse, it says this, and the rest were terrified. And then the most unusual statement is made right at the end of the 13th verse and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, wait a minute. These are unbelievers. These are people who were moments ago celebrating over God's two witnesses being overcome by the beast. And here they are afraid and giving glory to God? What's going on? Well, I have to think that in some cases, those who heard the messages of these witnesses will think back on what has been shared, and in a very few cases, they'll respond. But what we find that always blows my mind is this. A person can actually respond to the idea that God is and give even glory to God, but still not have a relationship with Him. One day I was watching a television show and there was an interview and this young man was talking about a lifestyle that was sinful. Any way you slice it, even sinners would look at it and say, wow, that's sinful. And he's going on and on about the sinful choices that he makes. And then somehow the conversation turned to God, and the first words out of his mouth were, yeah, I give all glory to God. Is it possible for a person to give glory to God, at least verbally, and have no interest in having a right relationship with God? And I would say to you, absolutely possible. Happens all the time. You see, Having a relationship with God is more than recognizing His greatness, more than recognizing that He is God. Demons recognize, James tells us, that He is God and tremble, but have no faith in Him whatsoever. So what we find here are these people responding to what has transpired with these two witnesses. They've heard their message They've celebrated their demise. Now they're afraid and they say, yes, God is powerful and they give glory to Him, but many of them will still not have a relationship with God. See, a relationship with God is me yielding to God, saying not only to God, you are God, but saying to God, you are God, I am a sinner and I need you. I need what you've provided in Christ Jesus. Take me, change me, let me turn from my sin to you. 
That's what's required to have that relationship with God. Now, as we continue in this passage, we find that in the 14th verse, it goes on to say, the second woe has passed. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. And then we move into the latter part of this passage. Chapter 11 goes on to talk about the seventh trumpet and how it will hasten the kingdom of this world coming to an end and the kingdom of God rising into prominence. Now, let's review for a moment. We've had seven seals. Each one of those seals brought judgments. The seventh seal led to seven trumpets. We've had six trumpets so far, each of those bringing judgment of one kind or another. And now we come to the seventh trumpet. And what we're going to see is when that seventh trumpet comes to fullness, there will be seven bowls of wrath that will be visited upon the earth. Now, we're not going to see what exactly transpires with those seven bowls of wrath until we get to chapter 16. So what we're going to see is an interlude where much information is given to us about what's going to take place during the tribulation. So bear that in mind. Now, look at this 15th verse. It says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's interesting when we look in Scripture, after the fall, while God is King of kings and Lord of lords, Satan is the God of this age and the king of this world system that is in place. When John uses the term world, he refers to a system of sin that is guided by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And what the Word of God is telling us is this. The sounding of this seventh trumpet is the beginning of the end for this world system, and it will be replaced by the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ when He reigns for a thousand years and on. So that's the hope that we have as we look at these terrible things that are described for us in this text. Now, it says here that there were voices in heaven who were uttering this praise about Jesus and the kingdom of the world ending and the kingdom of Christ coming into prominence. And then look at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the truth of who God is? He is God eternal. Before the fall, before the creation of the world, before anything was, there was God. He is the God who is and who was. And now people are beginning to see the power of God displayed in a way that is undeniable. No explaining away that this is the act of God, the work of God. Verse 18 goes on to say this, The nations raged, but your wrath came, 
and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. When we look at our world, it seems like the wicked get away with stuff. That is a perennial complaint that we find in the book of Psalms and that we felt ourselves, right? It's not right that people get away with the wickedness that they perpetrate and continue to harm people. Well, guess what? The Word of God is telling us there will come a time where everything will be answered for. For those who have perpetrated evil upon this world and who have not repented and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, there is judgment. The judgment that they've experienced here is just a glimpse of the judgment that they will experience for an eternity according to the Word of God. We're going to see that later in the book of Revelation. But what I truly find encouraging is the other part of that formula. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. Sometimes in serving God, we look and we say, wow, it just seems like everything I do goes unnoticed. I'm not really sure it's that important, you know? God assigns each of us an area of responsibility. And you know what we're judged on by God? Whether or not we've fulfilled our area of responsibility as far as reward. And the idea is this, if I am faithful to God... There will come that time where even if nobody else recognizes it, God has recognized it, and He will reward me. And whether you've done big things or, by our definition, smaller things, God rewards it. And we will receive the reward for serving God faithfully. And something else, God will destroy the destroyers of the earth. Man, when we look at the evil the inhumanity of people to other people. Through history, man has been cruel and destructive of those who are created in the image of God. We see that in our day, don't we? As millions of babies are aborted. Destruction. God will see to the destruction of the destroyers. And so we leave that in the hands of God. But then as we come to the 19th verse, we find something else. We are taken now into the heavenly temple. Interesting that the 11th chapter begins with a temple on earth in Jerusalem and what's going to take place there. And now, as the 11th chapter closes, we close with the heavenly temple that's in the throne room of God. And look at what the Word of God tells us about this throne room. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven, this is how we know it's the heavenly temple, is opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within the temple. Now, pause here for a moment, and I know that some of you, when you hear the Ark of the Covenant, you think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about heaven being opened and this Ark of the Covenant, it isn't the earthly Ark of the Covenant. 
that we're talking about. It's a heavenly Ark of the Covenant. You see, every piece of furniture that was in the earthly temple is a picture of what is in God's temple in heaven. And so, what John is able to do is to see the veil peeled back as far as heaven, and he's able to see into the temple of God in heaven, and he's able to see the Ark of the Covenant that is there. Now, what was the earthly Ark of the Covenant? It was the reminder to the people that God is faithful, that God keeps His covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was applied. When we look here in the book of Revelation, this Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God in heaven, I believe is the place where the blood of Jesus Christ was applied when He died on the cross. In fact, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What that verse is talking about is in the Old Testament, there was the earthly temple and there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and they would take the blood of a sacrifice and they would apply it to the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to cover sin for a year. Annually, they had to do that. What the writer of Hebrews reveals is when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed His blood for us, the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to that heavenly mercy seat. And it was done once and for all. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sin forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in that truth. I don't have to rely on a system that man built, yes, at the direction of God, but that man sinfully did not always do properly. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and His blood was applied to that heavenly mercy seat, once and for all He did it, but once and for all, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, all of my sin is dealt with. Once and for all. I need never fear God not forgiving my sin because of what Jesus did. So here in the book of Revelation... It's sharing that truth with us that this place in heaven, this Ark of the Covenant, is seen within His temple. And this is how John describes what he saw there. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. 
This is a holy place. This is a place of power. The power of the mercy seat was the blood of Christ to break sin. And so my encouragement to you this morning is this. As we've looked at this passage of Scripture, we've seen two witnesses that carry the message of God's truth, and there are those who reject it, there are those who listen to it and look at it and give glory to God but have no faith in God, and yes, there are those who will respond and find faith at that juncture and have a personal relationship with God because of the mercy seat that Christ applied his blood to. And I guess what I would ask you this morning is this, what category are you? We don't want to be like Harry Truman, hear the warnings, doubt whether they're true, or accept that they're true, but refuse to change our course. We want to be people who respond to the message of God's truth. God gives opportunity after opportunity for people to respond. But here's the problem. Rejecting God's offer of salvation hardens our heart. And just because we may consider what God offers freely in the way of salvation today, it doesn't mean that I'm going to consider what God offers freely tomorrow. This is why the Scripture tells us today is the day for salvation. If any have not come to the place to where they have placed their personal faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. For us as believers, this passage reminds us of something very important. God is on the throne. He reigns. We can trust Him, and we should do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that we worship the God who was and is and always will be, the one who will judge wickedness, but who will reward the faithful. May we be counted among the faithful, we pray in Jesus' name.